We're in 1 Timothy, 1 Timothy chapter 1, in one sense we could say we're also in uh, the law of God, as Timothy is going to call us here to loving the, the law of God, to talk about lawful use of the law, said Timothy, I mean the book of Timothy, this is Paul writing though, Timothy. So our focus today, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 11. Uh, but I'll read from verse 1 through verse 11. Dear God's holy word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, our Lord. As I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus, so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine, nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculation rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. The aim of our charge is love that issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussions, Desire to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they are saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. Now we know that the law is good. If one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been trusted. Thus far the reading of God's holy word, the grass withers, the flower fails, the word of our God endures forever. Let's pray for God's blessing. Lord, how we thank you for your word. And Lord, we do confess that we love your word. But Lord, we know that we do not love your word the way we should. So Father, strengthen us to love your word, to love you all the more. Make us, Lord, uh, students of your word. Not only sitting under the preaching of it, but studying it ourselves. And Lord, may that word transform us. And so Father, bless us now. Give us listening ears. And let us hear what you have for us. We do pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we've seen that the uh, purpose of 1 Timothy is to teach Timothy what the church is supposed to be and to do. Paul is giving a theology of ministry, if you will. And this is not merely the older, more mature pastor uh, giving his experience to younger pastor Timothy. This is the Apostle Paul speaking. In other words, he speaks by command of God. In other words, it's not just pious advice that Paul is bringing, not just helpful hints to ministry, but Paul is speaking here as an apostle, and therefore it is God who is speaking to us through the Apostle Paul. Now it's interesting where Paul or God begins with Timothy, as we saw last time. 
the first piece of instruction, the first counsel on ministry is not necessarily what we would expect. It's not Timothy, love the sheep under your care. But Paul could have said that. That is certainly something Timothy as a pastor must do. It's wise, it's biblical, it's necessary, but that's not where Paul starts. Nor does he say, he could have said, but he doesn't say, Timothy, labor in prayer, pour over in prayer over the sheep under your care because you can't change them, but I can or God can. That wasn't instruction that was given either, at least not the first bit of instruction. The first bit of instruction we might have been surprised was to stop the false teachers. Put false teaching in check. Don't allow people to teach other doctrine. That is doctrine that is different from what the apostles taught or what you find in the Old Testament. Today one of the most important tasks of a pastor and elders is to guard the sheep against any and all false False teaching is evil. False teaching is not loving. Timothy is to be diligent, was to be diligent, were to be diligent today as well. Now some have said, but doctrine causes divisions. And that's not the truth. Other doctrine, doctrine that isn't biblical, that doesn't come from the Bible, that causes divisions, that leads to speculations and disputes. These teachers in Ephesus wanted to be teachers of the law, but in reality, they didn't know the law. They didn't know what they were talking about. Their doctrine didn't come from the Word. It might have come from a little piece of the Word that they spun their own tales around, that they speculated about. They would take a point of the law and spin a tale about it, coming up with various different things. And the result was not godly edification. The result was disputes and fightings. Because one person might spin one tale and another person might spin a different and contradictory tale. But true doctrine leads to godly edification. We saw that the goal of true doctrine is love. Love in you. Love for God. And love for neighbor. True doctrine's goal isn't merely filling your head with knowledge so that you can have all your theological T's crossed and all your theological now, yes, I want you all to love doctrine, but not just so it's in the head, so that you can pass uh, a quiz if you were to be quizzed by someone. Because doctrine affects life. Because doctrine teaches us how to love. It comes from God. But today we're going to be looking at a lawful use of the law. Last week we saw that some would be use the law as a hunting ground for their fanciful speculations, as I just said. But Paul wants us to realize that the problem isn't the law, it's the use of the law that these false teachers have. The law itself is good, but one must use it lawfully or in accordance, according to the way in which it was given, not spinning myths and endless genealogies from it. Again, last time we looked at a wrong use of the law as a jumping point for myths. Today we'll look at a lawful use of the law. Three things in that regard. First of all, I want to stress, I want us to know, we need to understand that the law is good. 
There are some who consider the law as almost a bad thing. The law is good. Secondly, the Ten Commandments we'll see is a summary of the moral law of God. And thirdly, we'll talk about the law and sound doctrine and the gospel. Well, first of all, then, just because the false teachers abused the law, misunderstood the law, and used it in an unlawful way for their own fables, that didn't make the law itself bad. And that's what Paul stresses here. He says, verse 8, Now we, we who? We the apostles, we Christians, know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. By law here, Paul is referring to the Mosaic law, especially <coughs> the moral principles summarized in the Ten Commandments. And what does Paul say of the law? Very clearly, it is good. The law is good. And it's important that we understand that. Paul is not against the law. He's not anti-law. He's for the law. He's pro-law. The law is a, a good thing. Paul, an apostle, by commandment of God, tells you that, tells me that, tells us that the law is good. And really today, that's important for us to realize because there's a lot of people today that will look at the Old Testament and the law as something that was for a people long ago. It's not good for you now. But Paul, the apostle, by commandment of God, tells you it is good. And brothers and sisters, does God ever give you anything that isn't good? James 1.17 says, Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Again, a lot of people today view the law as something bad, something not for us, not for the believer today, but clearly that is not the view that's not the view of Paul. In fact, elsewhere, Romans chapter 7, verse 12, Paul says, So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. And also in Romans, same chapter, chapter 7, but verse 22, Paul says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Paul's not against the law, he's not opposed to the law. He loves it, he delights in it. He knows it's for his good. And if we Christians can't affirm with the apostle that the law is good and delight in it, there's something severely wrong with us. Yet the teaching of antinomianism is very common. Now what does antinomianism mean? Children, you know what antinomianism means? Anti means against. Nomianism, or nomos, right, means law. So it's, it's this idea about being against the law. Paul's not that. He loves it. It's his delight, and we ought to delight in it. In fact, let's talk about Jesus for a moment, and not just Paul. Jesus said, John 14, verse 15, If you love me, my commandments. That's the word of Jesus. What commandments, Jesus? What commandments do you think he was talking about? 
talking about. Isn't it clear? Especially the Ten Commandments. Obviously, the Ten Commandments. Jesus with the Father, the Spirit, are eternal. The Ten Commandments are His commandments. Besides, remember what Jesus Himself commanded in the Sermon on the Mount when He was talking about not coming to abolish the law. Matthew 5, verses 17 and 19. Do not think that I've come to abolish the law and the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, to destroy it, to get rid of it, to undo it. In fact, he said, not one iota, not one dot will pass from the law. Now, other translations have there, not one jot or one tittle will pass from the law. Now, what is a jot or a tittle? A jot or an iota refers to the <coughs> smallest letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Yes, it looks like an apostrophe. That's how small it is. It just looks like basically an apostrophe. So what's Paul saying? Not even the smallest letter is going to be erased or done away with. Well, what's a, what's a tittle? That's well, a stroke of a pen. Just a little mark, part of a letter. If we were to equate what a tittle is using our own alphabet, we might say, what's the difference between, I said this to you before, a capital C and a capital G? Right? A little line. Just that part of the line. We might say the dot above the I is a, is a, a tittle. Not one jot, not the smallest letter, not the smallest stroke of a pen is going to be done away with, says Jesus. It's not going to pass away. And then after that, what happened? Jesus went and took the various of the Ten Commandments and told them they were not just to apply these things in an external way, but apply the very Ten Commandments to the heart. Verses 27 and 28 of Matthew 5. You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. They thought of that as merely external, but Jesus said this, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Far from abolishing the law, Jesus applied it even deeper. Jesus applied it to the heart. Jesus saw the law, therefore, as good not as something archaic, not as something for a people long ago merely, but for us today as well. The law is good, the law is holy, the law is necessary. Yet there are some who look at this very passage of Scripture and say that the law isn't for the Christian. They say, based on this passage, it's only for unbelievers. Again, look at verses 8 and 9. Now we know that the law is good, if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers for murderers. And when they read that, read that the law is not for a righteous person, what do they say? 
I'm righteous in Christ. It's not for me. It's for the unbeliever. Now, it's true that we are righteous in Christ. There's no doubt about that. If you're in Christ, God sees us not still as sinners. He sees us as righteous in and of himself, or righteous, uh, not in and of ourselves, but because the righteousness of Christ has been imputed or charged to us. And so God sees us as righteous as Christ himself. But if we look at our own self, what do we see? How many of you, when we prayed this morning, or even this evening together, right, confessing our sin corporately, were really confessing your sin? You aren't righteous of your own doing. You continue to fall short. You continue to sin, and so do I. And so who's the law for? Romans chapter 3, Paul said, as it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. So if there's no one righteous in and of himself, and if you and I and everyone else is a sinner, the law then is for who? It's for you. It's for me. It's for everyone. Now if I am so good that I naturally keep the law, I don't mean the law, right? In fact, I told you in the past, wouldn't it be great if we didn't need a law outlawing abortion because everybody just acknowledged it was wrong? Wouldn't that be a wonderful thing? That would be a wonderful thing. But we have that law. Not everybody acknowledges that. Who knows what the law is right now? It gets confusing in our land. We know what the law of God says. teaches us. The law teaches those who are sinners. We need the law. The law teaches us what is right, what is holy, what is pleasing in the sight of God. And by the way, in this very context, Paul isn't viewing himself as righteous, is he? Right? What's Paul saying when we get down to verse 15? This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. Or as you know, other translations, calls himself the chief of sinners. So what's Paul saying? The law is for me. And I delight in Romans chapter 7. In fact, if the law was meant only for unbelievers, then why would Paul later apply it to believers as he does in Romans 13? Romans 13, verses 8 to 10 says, Owe no one anything except to love each other, for one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. And so do you see what Paul is doing here? He's applying the Ten Commandments to the Christian because the law is for the Christian. The idea that the law is not for believers is contrary 
to what Paul is teaching, contrary to what the Bible itself teaches. Yet I've heard so many people say, I'm free from the law. I don't have to keep the law. One man, told you this long ago, one man even told me this. He claimed to be a believer and he said to me, Pastor, I am free to rape, to kill, to steal. I am free in Christ. He said it with that kind of boldness too. He did go on and say, I won't do it, but I'm free to do it. Because I'm not under law. Now, the Christian in Christ is not under the condemnation of the law because Christ paid that condemnation or took that condemnation in our place. He took our punishment. But Jesus never said, if you love me, you are free from the law to do whatever you want. Rape, kill, steal, murder, I don't care. He didn't say that, did he? In fact, very specifically, he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. You're not free to do all this. In fact, even as we look at Ephesians chapter 2, right? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, as we learn in that passage and elsewhere. Why? Because we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. These wannabe teachers of the law, as they came up with their myths and endless genealogies, were self-righteous. They didn't think they really needed the law. Therefore, they looked for some kind of hidden information, some twist, some kind of special code, some kind of story they could spin out of it. So what was Paul saying to these false teachers? The law is not for you who think you're righteous. In other words, in essence, kind of saying the same thing Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, verse 17. When Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of the but those who are sick, I came. Uh, but those who are sick, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. And who's Jesus called to himself? Those who are righteous in and of themselves? No, all sinners. So who's lawful? Those who are sinners. It's not for those who are righteous. Because there is no one who's righteous. Indeed, these false teachers have a problem with pride, thinking too much of themselves. In 1 Timothy here, chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, it says this, If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ in the teaching that accords with godliness, he's puffed up with conceit and understands nothing. And then verse 20, O Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. So the law is good. But the law is to be used lawfully. The problem with the false teachers is they weren't using the law lawfully. Now, how do we use the law lawfully? What's the purpose? What's the uses of the law of God? And traditionally, it's been summed up under three points that I'm going to share with you now. First of all, it's a summons to repentance and faith. That's what the law does. It summons us to repent of our sin. It points out our sin. It shows us how far short we've fallen 
and therefore it drives us, it points us. It's our school teacher to point us to Christ. In fact, that, that's exactly what Galatians tells us. So then, Galatians 3, verse 24, so then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. Other translations call it a school teacher. The law does what? It says look to Christ. Look to Christ. It teaches us to look to Christ. That's one of the purposes of the law. The law shows us that we're sinners who need Jesus. Martin Luther put it this way. Speaking of the law, he said, It is a mighty hammer to crush the self-righteousness of human beings, for it shows them their sin, so that by recognition of sin they may be humbled, frightened, and worn down, and so may long for grace for the blessed offspring, Christ. It is in this sense that the law was our schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. Second use of the law. It's a means of preservation in human society. The law restrains evildoers by fright and shame from doing uh, things that they might have otherwise dared to do. Although leaving the heart unchanged, it's a deterrent from evil. Why is it that some people will go and rob a bank? Because they only go to jail. Right? So what's the law do? It restrains to a certain degree sin in society. But there's a third use of the law for believers, and this third use is very important. Third use for believers in whose heart the Spirit of God already lives and reigns. The law serves as a rule of thankful living. It teaches us and it shows us how to love God, how to glorify God. And if you've been redeemed by Jesus Christ, what ought to be your chief purpose in life? Your chief aim? That's the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. Hallowed be your name. Isn't that what we're aiming at? Ought to be aiming at anyways in all of life. How do you hallow God's name? How do you love God? Well, we've already said, Jesus said, right? If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In fact, one of the things I love to point out is even in the giving of the Ten Commandments in the Old Testament, it was never do this and I will save you from Egypt. What did God do? He saved them from Egypt. And then the preface to the Ten Commandments is this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. The law was given, not in the context of works, Save you in the context of grace and the context of thankful living. Keeping God's commandments is how we show our love for God. Paul said in Romans 6, the first two verses, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can he who died to sin still live in it? What's the Christian's response to grace? Not, woohoo, I can sin all I want. I can rape, murder, kill. It's what? Father has loved me so much that he gave the penalty by sending his son. And the hammer blows of his wrath 
came down upon his own son instead upon my own head to redeem me from my sin. So therefore, how? How can I live in that sin any longer? We're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, but we are saved for good works, which God, Ephesians 2.10, as I already referred to, which God works in us, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Again, this teaching that we're saved by good works is heresy. But the teaching that we're saved for good works is biblical. Teach that our works add to our justification is an unlawful use of the law. It's not our works. We just see, saw that in Ephesians chapter 2. But God works in us. Galatians 3.13 again. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Yet the law still applies. The law is good. 1 Peter 1, 15-19 But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. In all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as the Father who judges impartially, according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things, such as silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Why live for God? Because you were redeemed, not with perishable things. The price to redeem you was not silver and gold. That's something, in one sense, perishable and invalid, and not of any value. You were redeemed the precious blood of Christ, that of a lamb, without any blemish or spot. And so if you're not delighting in the law of your Savior, then you're not truly delighting in your Savior, who sacrificed himself in your stead. And so the law is threefold use. It knocks us down, it's a mighty hammer, shows us our sin, and thus points us to Christ. Second, it Restrains sin in society. It's a rule. A thankful living. The next thing that Paul does is to give us a summary of the Ten Commandments. Understanding this, verses 9 and 10, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, men who practice homosexuality, Enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. What we have in those short verses there is really just a brief sum, a quick sum of the Ten Commandments. The first description in the list refers especially to our duty toward God, and the latter part of the list refers especially to our duty to man, and I, I think you can probably see that. Lawless and disobedient are kind of a general sum of the whole law. And then ungodly, sinners, and holy, and profane refer to the first four commandments especially. Uh, and then after that, uh, murderers, father, those who strike fathers and mothers uh, refer to well, fifth commandment, sixth commandment, and uh, so on. George Knight uh, was a, an OP minister in his excellent uh, commentary here. Uh, says, uh, or 
basically points this out, I'm not going to quote him, but working backwards from the illusion of father and mother, he uh, proposes uh, that profane refers especially to Sabbath breaking, profaning the Lord's Day, fourth commandment, unholy. Uh, he proposes, uh, suggests those who take the Lord's name in vain, and so especially the third commandment, one who violates the law in regard to making idols is designated a sinner, second commandment issue, and finally, violators of the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, may be referred to as simply ungodly. But going on from there, the other commandments are certainly enumerated. Those who strike father and mother, certainly an extreme violation of the fifth commandment, which calls us to honor and father and mother manslayers or murderers, certainly a violation of the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. Sexually immoral, those who practice homosexuality refer to both heterosexual and homosexual sins and violations of the seventh commandment, you shall not commit adultery. <coughs> I let us stress that homosexuality is indeed sin. Those are our churches in our day and age that are approving of it more and more. Both heterosexual uh, or homosexuality is a sin, and heterosexual uh, adultery is a sin as well. Kidnappers or enslavers are guilty of the most heinous kind of stealing. Although uh, that has reference, of course, to the Eighth Commandment, you shall not steal. Finally, liars and perjurers break the Ninth Commandment, not bearing false witness. Tenth Commandment, okay, maybe not specifically mentioned here, thou shalt not covet. But uh, it may be that this is already included in the others. You know from elsewhere in Scripture that covetousness is idolatry, Colossians chapter 3. We also know that one who steals has first coveted what he's taken. And so in one sense, even the Tenth Commandment is really referred to here as well. The point I'm getting at here is that Paul, like Moses, is giving us a sum of the moral law. The law guards against all of this. The law teaches us how to love our God and how to love our neighbor. <coughs> we're no more free today to violate the law of God than the Israelites were in the Old Testament. We're not free to disobey God simply because we're saved by grace. Paul makes that very clear. How can we, who've been saved from sin, live in it any longer? Law teaches us how to love God. We're not free from obedience. No, in Christ we have new natures and we are now free to obey. No longer enslaved to sin. There's a lot more we could say on this. But finally, verses 10 and 11, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. I want you to notice something here very carefully. A breach of the Ten Commandments is also a breach of sound doctrine and the glorious gospel of Christ. We saw that Paul was summarizing or referring to the Ten Commandments, and then after that he says, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. Violate these things, live in these ways, right? That's a violation of sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God. Violations of the Ten Commandments are violations of sound doctrine. You can't teach others to break the commandments. That man I referred to cannot be saying, I am free to rape, kill, steal, murder. We must not imagine that just because we've embraced the gospel that we're free from the law. No, we're free from the law's condemnation. Christ took that condemnation in our place. 
but now we're free to obey, not free from, free from condemnation. But we want to seek to glorify God. Jesus didn't save us from the punishment of sin to leave us in the bondage of sin, to leave us in the cesspool of sin. For his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Paul told Titus, Titus chapter 2, 13 and 14, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all the lawlessness and to purify for himself the people for his own possession, who is zealous for good works. Right? We've been redeemed. People for Christ, his own possession, to be zealous for good works. We ought to be zealous about doing good. Not because we have to earn anything, but out of thankfulness. Lawlessness is contrary to the gospel. It's contrary to sound doctrine. May we indeed live for our God. Brothers and sisters, the law is good. Paul says that God's word says that the law points us to Christ as our own hope. It restrains sin in our society. It's a rule of thankful living. The law cannot, the law will not save. And anyone who teaches that it can save is unlawfully using the law. Christ saves his people through his righteous life and his sacrifice in our place. Christ doesn't leave us crippled and slaves to sin. He gives us a new heart. He gives us a love for him and a love for his law. And the law shows us and reminds us that we need Jesus. And shows us and reminds us how to love Jesus. So to God. Our Heavenly Father, we do rejoice. We rejoice in your mercy. And Father, help us to rejoice more and more in your law. Lord, may we with Paul proclaim and delight in that law. Knowing it shows us what you require of us. Knowing it shows us our sin and reminds us of what Christ has done to pay that penalty. Lord, we know the law doesn't save. Christ's work saves. Lord, help us to love you. We do pray.